Let me invite you to turn in your copy of the word to the 29th chapter of the book of Genesis. We come to uh, Genesis 29. We'll read verse 14 through verse 30. We come to the story, the classic story. We've been there for a bit of uh, Jacob. Jacob, the deceiver. Jacob, the heel grabber. Jacob, the guiler. Today, we're going to see Jacob, the guiler himself, beguiled. Uh, If you want to look at an outline, uh, I went kind of old school today and did a a fun little, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, D-focused outline. Deception, duplication, deliverance, you can follow along. I'll I'll give them to you again in a few minutes. But we come this morning to the story of Jacob and Laban. It's a great story. Maybe you know it, but um, we'll study it a little more this morning. We'll begin in in, in verse 14, building off the... uh, the previous account of Jacob meeting Laban. Let's listen to the word of Moses. Let's listen to the word of our Lord. Laban said to Jacob, surely you're my bone and my flesh. And Jacob stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of that of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, look, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me that I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, in our country, it is not so done to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we'll give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. The grass withers and the flowers, they will fade. This word does not. It lives on. It endures. It stands. Sure, forever. Let's pray and ask God's standing word to be standing in our hearts today. Father, we come to you as those who shade the truth. We come to you as those who try to trick you. We think you can't see into our hearts. You don't see our our little sins. You don't see our flaws. We think we can trick you because we can trick other people. Show us, Lord, that you're the God who sees through all of our disguises, all of our shields, all of our facades. And yet, Lord, even in that, that your grace pursues us to bring us integrity, to bring us to the true state of life with you. Lord, Do not deceive us now. Give us your truth. 
Reveal to us your glory. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Let me give a note here before I begin. We come to meet the character of Leah because I was raised watching Star Wars. I may say at times, Leah. I may shade the two. I have to ask your patience on that as she's a character here. It's one of my uh, besetting flaws and failures. But thus far, Leah, Leah, Rachel's a little easier to say. A man decides that he wants to jump off Stone Mountain one day. He goes there and his friends tell him, you know, hey, don't jump off a stone mountain. Not a great, not a great look. Not going to be good. Not, not going to end up well for you. He doesn't care. He goes. He goes to the top. He jumps off the mountain. He hurdles down and about 30 feet away from getting splat. He thinks so far, so good. So far, so good. That's Jacob. That's Jacob this morning. He's done something, well, quite foolish, but so far it's been looking pretty good. Everything's been going well. He's smiling. He is wonderful. He had to run away from home. You know, he got the blessing. He got the inheritance. He got the firstborn blessing, the great blessing. He had to leave for a little bit. He's headed east. He's headed home to, to, a, to his relative, Laban, his uncle. But you know what? He's had a great time at Bethel. He's seen that great staircase, that great ladder. God showed up. God said, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bring you back home. He's had a word from the Lord. And then Last week, he met the most spectacularly beautiful girl he ever knew. He's fallen head over heels for Rachel. He's in love. And best of all, we just heard it, verse 14, his uncle Laban's a great guy. He says, hey, come on in. Spend some time with me. Just stay, your family. That's great. So he's staying with him a month or so. That's wonderful. So far, so good. Jacob the deceiver, he's gotten away with it. Jacob the cheat, he's got away with it. You know, God gave him a little slap on the wrist, you know, uh-uh, little naughty boy. But hey, so far, so good. He's had to leave home, but that's about it. Jacob is about to hit the floor. He's going to hit the deck. He's going to smash hard into reality. We see that today, as I mentioned earlier, in, in really two, two key ways. We see it in the fact that Jacob himself gets deceived. But we also see it first in the way Jacob has to work. The key theme in this whole text, this passage, is work. Hard work. It's a word repeated seven times. Bone-wearying work. Gulag work. Hard work. Labor. Drudgery. Seven times in 16 verses, it's work. Work, 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 work. You'll notice the path, it starts with work. Verse 15. Laban says to Jacob, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Should you work for me for nothing? It ends with work. Verse 30. Jacob worked for Laban. He served Laban. Work, work, work. He is entering a long, dark stretch of hard, bone-wearying, back-breaking toil, which he richly deserves. Which he richly deserves. It's a warning. It's a warning to us, but we're going to see as well, it's also our deliverance. It's a warning, yet also our deliverance. We're going to notice three features here. You have them right there. First, deception. Deception. Very clearly, Jacob's deceived here. Jacob is tricked. He's deceived by his uncle Laban. But first, it looks pretty great. Look at verse 15. First, it seems wonderful. Laban comes to Jacob. and You know, he's come to his nephew. And he's doing a really great thing, right? Because you're my kinsman, because we're family, should you therefore serve me? Should you work for me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? I mean, isn't that very noble? He's giving Jacob a blank check. It's amazing, right? It's incredible. 
I'm going to pay you. I value you so much. I'm not going to just take advantage of you. I'm going to give you money. Write your salary on the dotted line. Wonderful. Actually, of course, Laban's a very shrewd man. He's a very devious man. We don't see it because we're Americans. And the first question we ask anybody is, what's your job? We are wage focused. We are laser centered on what do you do? What do you get for that? But in those days, and really in the Bible, that wasn't the central point. What mattered more was your status, your position. You see, Jacob here foolishly in saying yes to Laban, Laban and offering it, is offering Jacob a poison pill. He's offering him a poison pill. The poison pill is this. I am changing your position from an honored member of the family, my nephew, my nephew, to a hired hand. He is degrading Jacob. He is humiliating Jacob. Moreover, in this, we see behind Laban the deceiver, we see the father of lies himself. We see the serpent Satan working as well, trying to undo the great promise of the Bible. Because one of the great themes of the entire story of Scripture is that God transforms slaves into sons. God transforms worker bees into family pals. It's the gospel of John. It's what Christ says. John 15, verse 15. Christ says, I no longer call you my servants, but my friends. It's what Romans tells us, right? You've been adopted. What's the glorious truth that Paul points to? You have been adopted because you've been given the spirit of adoption. Therefore, you are no longer slaves, but sons. And the funny thing is, Jacob's entire life has been defined by family. What has he wanted from the get-go? To be the number one in his family. He is at birth, from the womb. He grabbed his older brother's heel because he wanted to take his place. His trickery, his lies have been aimed at getting what? Not more money, but the family blessing, the family birthright. And he got it. He is the head honcho. Jacob is the favorite son. He's the prized child. But what does he do now? He squanders it. He he gives it all away. Like I said, we are people who obsess over uh, wages, centered on work. We discuss the minimum wage. We talk about the Protestant work ethic. We chat about the importance of a good, hard day's work. But recall what our Savior says in John 10. The hired hand, the wage slave. Cares nothing for the sheep, but the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jacob is transferring himself in a foolish move from the beautiful son, the beloved son, into the hired hand. Laban wins. Laban's first trick works. He is the son of Satan, the father of lies trying to undo God's promise that God fed Jacob I loved. I will bless Jacob. I will make him fruitful. Laban is a servant of his master, Satan. And of course, it's not just that, right? Laban ties down Jacob for seven years. He ties down Jacob for seven years. It's a long-term contract. Mama Rebecca had told Jacob, hey, you're back in a few days, a month, a couple of weeks. (laughs) Jacob thinks that he has another thing coming. So Laban employs Jacob, not because he's generous. He wants leverage. 
He's imprisoning Jacob. He's putting Jacob in chains. He is, now notice this, this guy Laban, he is willing to sell his younger daughter and his older daughter so long as he can have years of labor from Jacob. You look through the passage, you'll notice that Laban never actually says the name of his daughters. Verse 27, this one, the other one, never says their name. Why? Because they're tools to him, just like Jacob is. He sees people as instruments that he can use. People that he can use. And Laban's no fool, of course. He's a very cunning man, just like his father, Satan. He knows that in giving Jacob a blank check, Jacob won't ask for money. He's seen this young guy. He's seen him have googly eyes for Rachel. He's seen him moon over her. He is obsessed with Rachel. So he knows very well what Jacob's going to ask. He is besotted and infatuated with this gal. He knows, Laban does, Jacob's kryptonite. It's obvious to anybody. Now we're told, verse 16, that Laban has two daughters, not just one. The older one's Leah, the younger one's Rachel. Verse 17, we are told, at least in the ESV, that Leah's eyes were weak. This is a weird thing to say. Popular views tell us that this might mean she was, uh, you know, nearsighted or cross-eyed or she had some sort of ugly, you know, feature. She was the ugly duckling. Well, that's not quite the case. This word used elsewhere in the scriptures, it's not translated weak. It's translated, you might say, gentle. So actually, this is a compliment. Her eyes were gentle. We don't know exactly what that means. It's a, it's a softness. There's something beautiful about them. The comparison is not between ugly and beautiful. The comparison is Leah has one part of her that's beautiful, her eyes, And Rachel is all over beautiful. It's the lesser to the greater, right? Leah has nice eyes, but Rachel has nice everything. She's entirely a stunner. So Jacob says, verse 18, seven years I'll serve you. It's interesting, of course, Jacob has no bride price to pay. You recall uh, chapter 24, Abraham's servant comes to Laban. He's decked out with gold. He's got the nose rings. He's got the earrings. He's got the money. He can, Laban loves it, right? He pays for Rebekah. That was customary in those days. You pay a bride price. What does Jacob have? He's, he's got nothing. He has a stone for a pillow. What does he have? He has his pecs. He has his, you know, delts. He has his muscles. He can work. And so he says, I will pay you seven years. Seven years of wages. That's about, as far as we can tell, three times the going rate for a bride. It's an exorbitant price. It's a big offer. And Laban sees Jacob's love, his obsession with Rachel. And he says, he thinks I can get a better deal. So listen to how Laban responds in verse 19. Notice, <laughs> it's a, it's a, I mean, it's an awful response. It's a great response, though. It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Now, is that actually saying I'm a giver to you? No. He's saying, you know, hypothetically, yeah, I guess it would be better if she goes with you than somebody else. But he, he never promises anything. He's very canny. He's very clever. He does not promise anything. It's a nice hypothetical. It would be great if she was your bride. <laughs> and Jacob, of course, is uh, so uh, deceived. He's so infatuated that he says, awesome, I'll do it. In verse 20, one of the most beautiful romantic verses in the Bible. Serve seven years, they seem to him but a few days, 
because of the love that he had for her. It's wonderful. Seven long years of shepherd. The time flies. He's having fun. And then there's the wedding. You know, we would expect Laban maybe a month before the wedding, like any like a good dad, to come and say, hey, Jacob, let's get things settled. You know, you and Rachel, all right, we're going to do it. Laban does none of that. Jacob has to go to Laban, verse 21. He, he has to go and say, you'll notice how he says it. Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. That's pretty intense words, pretty hard words. But he wants her. You can feel desperation there. He, he needs his wife. He needs this woman. If only he had been specific. If only he had said, give me Rachel. Hindsight's a perfect thing, right? If only he had said, give me Rachel. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Instead, uh, we have a typical Middle, Middle Eastern wedding. It's a week. Uh, there's a huge uh, seven-day, seven-night party time at the feast. Uh, all the food you can want, all the drinking you could want. The words feast here actually uh, in verse 22 means a drinking feast. There was a lot of partying going on. That's significant. We'll see in a second. The end of the week, the bride and the groom came together. And here's where Laban manipulates his daughters and makes the switch. Can you imagine the scene? Jacob in the tent. He's ready. He's excited. He's not really thinking with his brain too much. His heart's stumping. It's dark. He's had a fair bit to drink. His bride brought into him. And, and of course, we think, Jacob, how can you not tell it's the wrong, the wrong woman? Of course, we live in a, way, in a day where we're not in the Middle East. We're not in the desert. But if you were in the Middle East, even today, what do you often see? Folks covering themselves. In those days, there were veils upon veils upon veils. One of the most, one of the most important things you would see were the eyes. You wouldn't see a lot else. It's dark. Leah's veiled up. Jacob's had a fair bit to drink. And also, just culturally, men and women didn't mix a lot as much as we do these days. In those days, he wouldn't have had a lot of time with Rachel or Leah. Any conversation that night would have been whispered. They wouldn't have been shouting. You see, in this situation, it's a lot easier to switch the girl than in our day. A lot easier. And so we hear just that classic way the Bible talks, verse 25, in the morning. Oh, look, it's Leah. It's the wrong one. You can imagine Jacob's shock. He sees the wrong lady. He's been snookered well and truly deserved. Deception. Deception. So that's really the story in one sense. What does it begin to mean? What does it mean? We come to the second point, really. Duplication. That's a story, but what does it mean? This entire scene is a duplicate. It's echoing with duplication. It's echoing with twinning. You should feel a sense of deja vu as you read through it. We've been here before. Think about Jacob. What does Jacob prefer? What does Jacob look to? Jacob prefers the younger daughter to the older daughter. We've been here before. In his love, what does he do? He pushes the older one aside in favor of the younger. It's classic Jacob. It's vintage Jacob. He jostles Esau aside in the womb. Birthright, blessing, younger. Now he's doing it again. What does Laban do? What does Laban, the seed of Satan, do? He exploits the weakness. He sees the temptation. He knows Jacob is hungry for Rachel. He knows Jacob is ravenous for Rachel. He takes advantage of Jacob's earthly appetite. Remember, 
Remember last week, what is all that Jacob knows about Rachel? Her looks. Her looks. Her physical appearance. He knows zip about her character. He knows zero about her soul. He doesn't care about that. And you'll see what he says when he asks for her to Laban. Verse 21, give me my wife. I want to go into her. My times. He, he, he is, and just like his brother Esau. Recall Esau. Esau was a beast. He was an animal. He was obsessed with food. He was focusing the kill and the hunt. He was ravenous. And Jacob is the doppelganger now. He is the one who is the very picture of his brother Esau, not for food, but for women. He is obsessed. He is driven by his passions and emotions. Jacob is focused only on what his eyes can see. And what does Laban do? Laban, like Jacob earlier, takes advantage of his weakness and cheats him. We meet a blind man like Isaac who is being deceived, but Jacob's blindness in the tent is not due to old age. It's due to alcohol and darkness and veils. He is just like his father Isaac, blind. We see in Jacob's past, the younger pretended to be the older, but now it's flipped. The older Leah pretends to be the younger Rachel. We see in verse 25, what does Jacob say? Why then have you deceived me? That's the exact verb used by Esau chapters before. Esau says, Jacob, why has he deceived me? Jacob the deceiver, Jacob the guiler, now he is beguiled. And perhaps the central verse, verse 26, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the older. To give the younger in place of the firstborn. Now, if that was actually their custom, Laban should have mentioned it seven years before then. But it's ironic. It ain't our custom to allow the younger to take precedence. That's the way you may think life works, Jacob. You may have supplanted the older, but we don't do that here. Not in our country. And how these words brand themselves on Jacob's life. The point is clear, friends. Jacob has brought this on himself. People are doing to him what he did to others. He is getting a taste of his own medicine. He is being served as he served others. And this shows us, friends, that God is never blind to injustice. This shows us that God is never blind to sin. Jacob hasn't gotten away with it. And you know, friends, that your sins have a habit. Our sins have that little annoying habit of coming back to haunt us. If you take advantage of somebody, if you neglect God, by the way, God never mentioned this story. If you neglect God, if you're prayerless, as Jacob has been since Bethel, you're going to reap that. If you set an example for your kids, you may very well see that example reflected in a grotesque form in their lives. If you were sunk in self-pity, you may find the abyss too deep to get out of. The very thing Jacob had tried to overturn, the younger and the older, the very thing is being overturned on him. Because his testosterone, not the testimony of the faithful, is driving this marriage. We'll see it end up in a shambles. But one of the things we need to learn here is what Christ says in John's gospel, chapter 2. We're told that Christ did not automatically entrust himself to everybody. As we grow as Christians, 
We must understand whom we can trust. Jacob did not ask his friends. He didn't ask his family. He did not ask anybody before he went out on the trip what kind of guy is Laban like. Rebecca had known Laban. They're related. They were together. She would have told him, yeah, this is what Laban's like. Jacob never asked. Jacob never asked. What was Laban's attitude? What was his attitude to the grace of God in Jacob's life? What was his attitude to this man who comes with God's blessing? His attitude is not to welcome Jacob because he loves God's grace. He welcomes Jacob because he's strong, hardworking. And so therefore, friends, if you meet people, you have to ask these kind of questions. What is their spiritual condition? What is their spiritual disposition? When Jesus Christ comes into their picture, do they disappear? When Jesus Christ comes into their conversation, do they scatter? Do they do spiritual things sincerely or very artificially? And one test of that, friends, it's the test here. Where are their eyes going? Where are their eyes diverted to? Jacob's eyes are diverted to a woman. Esau's eyes were diverted to the meal. Laban's eyes are diverted to the biceps and the money he can get from that. The great test. Do our eyes look to God's promise? Or do they look somewhere else? One of the great lessons of Scripture we heard about this morning, even, is the need to get wisdom, the need to get discernment, to see the character of folks. Jacob didn't have that wisdom here because as a Christian, he had not stood upon the wisdom God provides, he had leaned on his own understanding. He had leaned on a surface-level understanding of people. So he was deceived, friends. This is a, a lesson for us. If we think we're so, we're so clever, we think we're self-reliant, God cannot be mocked. But there's more than deception. There's more than duplication. There is actually, in this strange passage, a weird way, there's actually deliverance. Well, after the con, what happens? What happens after the con? Laban comes to Jacob uh, Jacob comes to Laban and says, well, what have you done? And Laban says, well, it's not in our country. But you know what? I'll give you, Rachel, just work for me seven more years. You have to, you have to at least admire Laban's gall. You have to admire his pluck. He goes to Jacob and says, yeah, do it again. Jacob is overpaid for a wife he doesn't love. If he wants Rachel, he'll need to work seven more hard years. He does it. There's the marriage. And you have to think that those seven years were not as quick to pass as the first seven had been. They were not just God's punishment. They were not just reaping what Jacob sown. It was God's discipline because all his life, Jacob has been a deceiver. And he is learning what it means to be deceived. He is learning for seven more hard years what it means to be deceived. Every day, he works an unfair job for unfair wages. Every morning, he is, knows what it means to be in the hands of a master crook. Jacob was the student. Laban's the master of deception. Jacob is cheated and cheated again. We'll find that ten times in this saga, Jacob is cheated by Laban. Until cheating comes out of his eyes, cheating comes out of his nostrils, cheating becomes as hateful as hell, one author writes, to Jacob's heart. Do you think that after all of this, Jacob would ever want to deceive anybody again? Friends, this is how God actually delivers Jacob. He delivers him through discipline. 
It was Jacob's salvation that he fell into the hands of his uncle. It's how God deals with Jacob in weird, difficult kindness to bring about ultimate goodness. It's the way God deals with some of your sins. He wants to teach you about the ugliness of your life, the ugliness of your sin. He wants to show you what a horrible thing it is. He wants to bring you back to himself. It's what David says, before I was afflicted, I strayed. God's afflicting Jacob in faithfulness. That's one lesson we learn here. But we also see, friends, something immensely moving and hopeful and encouraging. Here we see a child of God, mistreated, disappointed, frustrated, cheated. Much of it his own fault, true. But in all of it, God works. In all of it, God works. That's part of the reason why we get the mention of these servants here, Bilhah and Zilpah. Because from these four ladies, the whole nation of Israel will come. From these four ladies, the tribes of Israel will come. We'll see next week the story of unloved Leah. But unloved, neglected, unhappy Leah will be the mother of all the priests of Israel. Not Rachel. The mother of all the kings of Israel. Not Rachel. The mother of Jesus Christ. Not Rachel. Jacob may be easily deceived, but God is not easily diverted from his promise and his plan. And friends, that's true of you. If you have chastening, if you have hard times in your life, if you experience that, and if you're a Christian, I hope you have, if you experience that, know that the Lord does that to those he loves. The Lord does that to the people he loves. By his word, God changes us. The New Testament tells us that if you don't ever experience any hardship from God, the chance is that you're probably not a Christian because the Lord chastens the people he loves. And there's a tactic he loves to use sometimes. He does what some parents do with, with curious children. You know, a son comes and says, hey, dad, all my friends are smoking. I want to smoke, too. And, and sometimes the, the parent says, oh, you do? OK, here, try it. They try it and they gag and they never do it ever again in their life. It's a tactic of giving a little bit of the evil to ward off the future. A taste of the very own poison. What's, what's God's medicine he uses here with Jacob? He brings Jacob to a master deceiver. It's what David says in the Psalms. With the pure, you are pure. but With the crooked, you show yourself crooked. I've listened to folks tell me sometimes a hard story. They say, well, why didn't God prevent me from that foolishness? Why didn't God stop me? Inevitably, you come to find out they never asked God to stop it. They never prayed to God to stop it. They just kept on having it. They traveled down the path of folly. And yet in all this story, what is God doing? The funny thing is we see here that a man reaps what he sows. Jacob reaps what he sows. But if you're a Christian, you're not the only sower in town. If you're a Christian, you're not the only one who's sowing in your life harvesting in your life. God is sowing as well. God is counter-sowing the evil one. He's counter-sowing your sin. He's sowing his life. He's sowing his character. And that's the problem with Laban. Laban is blind like Jacob, but he's blind to God. He's blind to God. The uncle cannot see that God is using the younger in place of the older. And the same, friends, is true of Laban's master, Satan himself. The great dragon, 
cannot perceive that God would love his enemies so much so that he sends his only begotten son, the beloved son, that God would send his son into the far country to people who cheat him. You know that we read this morning from Mark that Jesus Christ is betrayed. He is deceived. He is cheated. He fell into the hands of greedy people like Laban, happy for 30 pieces of silver. And therefore, friends, if you see God triumphant on the cross, Satan looked at the cross and said, yes, I have the victory. I have won. I have conquered that plan. I have undone it. We look here at Jacob. We think that he is in the mess. He'll never get out of it. But just as he will be brought home, God says, I will bring you home, Jacob. We see at the cross that God stunningly, shockingly, Fools the arch deceiver. He beguiles the guiler, the father of lies. The evil dragon is tricked by what looks like triumph. Because at Calvary, what does Pilate say? There hangs the man. Eke homo, behold the man. And what does Christ say? When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. He doesn't mean at his ascension. He doesn't mean at his resurrection. It means a Calvary, what looks like weakness, what looks like folly, what looks like losing is actually the greatest victory in the whole world. Every eye, we're told that every eye as they crossed Jerusalem, as they walked into there, they looked at him. We're told that the Romans and the Jews and the high priests and all the crowd, they looked at him. And the very weapon that Satan believes would gain the victory, the cursed death of crucifixion, the deliberately shameful, deliberately cruel advertisement of Roman imperial power, that very example of earthly cunning and scheming and success, God uses to gain the victory. So if he can do that with all that, don't you think he can do it with you? I mean, if in that great moment, truth can overcome deceit, if in that moment... God can draw all types of people to himself. What about you if you're trapped in the web of deceit? What about you if you're trapped and the cobwebs of your heart are just spreading all over and the spiders are kind of rustling around in your life and the evil and the trickery is coming out with every conversation you have? Do you not think that God knows all of that and nonetheless can bring you home to glory? God will bring Jacob home. There is one who can extricate you, friends, from the web of your heart. Give up the pretense of folly. Give it up. Cry out to God. Pray for his medicine to heal. Because the beauty of the gospel is that God uses the very wages you earn, the very wages of sin. He uses the very wages of sin, death, to deliver you from the wages of sin. He uses the very wages because he lays them on the sinless Savior. He lays them on the Savior that he might bear the weight of God's judgment, that he might bear your deceit, that he might enter into the darkness of your spiritual entanglement to bring you into his home, to make you a son. The Bible tells you again and again, you want to enslave yourself. But I triumphed over even that. Jacob did it. Jacob did it. Jacob, the guy who had just seen God at Bethel, who had had a a word from the Lord, who had had God standing with him, Jacob did it. And if Jacob can do it, and God can rescue him. Don't you think he can do the same with you?
So what do you do in light of that? What do you do in light of that? You, you, you repent. You believe. And repentance, friends, is not what you do when you come here and you say you're sorry. It's when you leave here and you go back down that road. You go back down the sorry highway you came down. And step by step, day by day, week by week, hour by hour, God brings you back home. God brings you back home. He repairs your life. He restores to you the joy of your salvation. Are you doing that? Are you able to be a truth teller finally? Because the word of truth comes to you. May that be us. May that be us today, this week, at home, at work, at play. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you are the one who leads us into truth because, Father, we will lead ourselves astray. We confess that we're the blind leading the blind. Give us sight, Lord. Give us heart-level eyes opened up to behold your many and precious and great promises that are yes, that are amen in our Savior. Deliver us from the evil one. We pray this in the name of the master of truth, the God of all grace, the son who was older and yet was stricken for our salvation. Jesus Christ. Amen.